Well, now, this evening, here I am, Daniel, in the lion's den, <laughs> with this subject, the place of sisters in the life and gatherings of the church. On few subjects can there have been quite so much perplexity, misunderstanding, and in some instances, so much bondage, inhibition, and bitterness produced as over this matter of the place of sisters or women in the life and gatherings of the church. Certainly the most extraordinary and contradictory teachings have been deduced from the scriptures. All kinds of theories have been propounded and scriptures made to support the theories. In some cases where scripture cannot uh, support the theory, then other kinds of uh, evidence have been sought to uh, support uh, some idea or theory. Much of the trouble has stemmed from a refusal to accept what all the scripture says on this subject. In all the extreme views on the ministry of women in the church, whether it is to silence them all together and give them absolutely no part except to sing a hymn, or the other end of the scale, which is to um, introduce them into everything. I knew of a, uh, of a company, a church in London where the stewards were women, the minister was a, a woman, uh, the person who led the meeting was a woman, everything was women. That's the other extreme, of course. Um, in all the extreme views on the ministry of women in the church, certain scriptures are taken and others are either ignored, twisted, or explained away. Now, this is the whole problem. Whether you go to one extreme or the other, you cannot be scriptural. Now, your argument is not with me uh, this evening, uh, if you uh, don't agree with what we have to say tonight, your argument, and let me make this, I shall make it clear again and again through the evening, must be with the Word of God. Must be with the Word of God. And if we are subject to the Word of God, that is, we abide by its authority and its rule, then we have to take all scripture on any given subject. There is no scripture of private interpretation. That is, uh, you cannot just take a scripture uh, and say that is everything to the exclusion of another scripture on the same subject. Uh, we have to take into consideration all the various aspects of a subject given to us in the word of God. Now, whether we take the view that uh, uh, sisters can do anything and everything a brother does, just as well, if not better, or whether we take the view that women should be silenced completely in the church, should be seen but not heard, 
Um, the fact of the matter is you've got to take certain scriptures and ignore other scriptures or twist them or explain them away as being outmoded, old-fashioned or just a certain way of life uh, existing in the first century. The word of God is in fact, and let me say this quite clearly, the champion of women. In no other writing from antiquity, from the very beginning of the Bible, have women been given such an honored and respected position. Far from the word of God downgrading women, devaluing women, turning them into a chattel. It has guarded their position, given them a respect, honored them, and placed them in a position in society which no other pagan or Gentile society ever even approached. Nowhere in the Bible is the woman devalued or even despised. Now, I am not talking about the construction that certain people put on scriptures. I am talking about the word of God itself. When we put aside some of men's constructions upon the word, we discover that the word does not devalue the status of women or even the rights of women. It honors them and champions them. For instance, you often hear this rubbishy nonsense that the Apostle Paul was a woman hater. Oh, you hear it again and again, a woman hater. The Apostle Paul always said exactly what he thought. <clears throat> but that doesn't mean to say that he was a woman hater. Of all those writers of the New Testament, I believe that the Apostle Paul is the supreme champion of women. He guards them again and again. You just read 1 Corinthians 7 and see what he says about women and their rights over their husbands. Many a marriage would be saved if it was just in what the Apostle Paul said about a woman's right over her husband's body. Apart from anything else. The fact of the matter is, the Apostle Paul was able to say things in a plain, down-to-earth manner which many preachers wouldn't dare to say today. Um, it's therefore, I think, all the more important to give real regard to what the Word of God actually says upon this subject. Uh, nor to take certain scriptures at the expense of others, but all scripture. Furthermore, I think we need particularly to take 2 Timothy, a very well-known passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 
that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now that must be our basis this evening. All scripture is inspired of God and profitable for teaching. Our problem is that when we come up against a difficulty, some would like to explain it away in first century terms and say, well, of course, it was all to do with the first century and first century customs. If this was so, surely the Spirit of God would have cut the whole thing out of the world, since he would have only dealt with the first century or a few succeeding centuries. No, we believe not only in the authority of the Bible, we believe in the sufficiency of the Bible. That is, not only is it authoritative um, in uh, all matters to do uh, with life and conduct, but it is sufficient. That means that everything within the Word has some meaning for us and cannot be despised or disregarded. To despise or to disregard it must mean uh, our own loss and spiritual impoverishment. So um, we must bear this in mind. I feel that this subject, as we would well understand, over this subject, the enemy has done a terrible work. He has turned light into darkness and privilege into bondage. He has turned honor into misery. And uh, in one sense, we would expect it to be so. So complex has this subject become, so many misconstructions have been placed upon it, that for many girls, many sisters, they cannot approach this matter in an objective manner. The moment it starts to come up, they cannot, they can only see it in a subjective manner. The way they feel they're being treated in the world, the way they feel they've been brought up, the way they feel they're treated in the church, and so on and so on and so forth. It's all a kind of subjective uh, way, uh, manner of approach. Um, now, I think we ought to look to the Lord, every one of us, uh, that we may be objective and we may allow the Word of God to teach us. And if there are theories um, uh, that we have which are not of God, they may be exploded. Uh, we may be... Uh, they may be destroyed, and we may be unable to really see uh, what the Lord has to say uh, in his word about this matter. Well, now, I'm just going to confine myself, basically, uh, to uh, three uh, matters, and then I'm going to seek to answer questions. <laughs> I'll get to it. Um, firstly, scriptures relating to the place of sisters in the life of the church. Now, let's just have a look at all these scriptures uh, that are uh, used normally in this matter to do with the play, place of sisters in the life of the church. First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4 and 5. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman praying or prophesying with her head unveiled, dishonoreth her head, for it is one and the same thing as if she were shaven. Then, in the same letter, chapter 14, verse 34 and 35. As in all the churches of the saints, let the women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, 
but let them be in subjection as also saith the law. And if they would learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, very much of the problem rests upon these verses in 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. Uh, it rests upon these verses and exactly what they mean. Let a woman keep silent in the churches. Let the women keep silent in the church. Not permitted uh, unto them to speak. Let them be in subjection. As the law said, it's a shame uh, that a woman should speak in the church. Now, one thing we must understand is that the whole of this passage from chapter 11 right through to the end of chapter 14 is dealing with church matters. Now, if we understand that, we shall be saved a lot of trouble. There are certain sections uh, in Christendom um, uh, who have insisted that the first part about women praying and prophesying is to do with their prayer praying it privately in their home, and that there they should have their head covered. But of course it makes nonsense of prophesying. Uh, you don't prophesy by your bedside, generally speaking. The very nature of prophecy is toward others and for others. And um, uh, anyway, apart from anything else, from chapter 11, verse 2, right through to chapter 14 in the last verse, uh, we are dealing with church matters. We're dealing with the Lord's table, with disorder at the Lord's table. We are dealing with uh, the body of Christ, uh, with the manifestation of the Spirit, the different gifts and functions in the body. We're dealing with love as the principle of all church life. We're dealing with the gifts and so on. In chapter 14, again, all these things are church matters. We're not dealing with things that you do at home. We're dealing with the gatherings and life of the people of God. Now, we must remember that chapters and verses were not put in by the Apostle Paul or by any other New Testament writer. Some half-crazy monk in the 15th century spent his life reducing the New Testament to verses and chapters. I suppose we should be thankful uh, for him. He was, in fact, mad. Um, but we should be thankful, at least, that he did this. Um, because it has helped us all to memorize scripture. But it has also had a great drawback. Because again and again, people take chapters and verses as inspired. And it breaks their whole, the whole flow of thought. And people forget that this was a letter with a beginning and an end. And a whole development. And here the Apostle Paul takes up matter, the matter of church gatherings. And he begins by talking about men and women praying and prophesying. One with their head uncovered, the other with his head, her head uh, covered. And then he goes on to other matters, and then finally says something about silence. Now, is it really possible that a man such as Paul, within a few paragraphs of the same letter, dealing with the same subject of the gatherings of the Church of God and the life of the Church of God, should blatantly contradict his first statement? First he says, when they pray and prophesy, and then he says they should shut up. It's a shame for them to speak. Now, of course, as some will tell you, ignoring the earlier, 
Some will tell you. They say, and when it says it is a shame for a woman to speak, that means it's a shame for a woman to speak. Meaning praise, prayer, or any other matter. Although in these assemblies they allow them to sing. Which I find very extraordinary. Um, never mind, it doesn't seem quite logical, but there you are. Um, they do. Um, it seems to me that if women should keep silent, they should be completely silent. And uh, have no part at all. But it seems quite clear, surely, that the Apostle Paul uh, is not speaking about women praying and prophesying uh, uh, in one place and just a little later on in the same letter flatly contradicts himself in this matter. What therefore can this seeming contradiction mean? Surely it's quite clear that sisters can take part in public prayer and prophesying. If nothing else, it seems quite clear that sisters can take part publicly in the gatherings and light of the church, in prayer and prophesying. It seems also as clear that it must be in, a, in an orderly way and manner. It would appear that some women at Corinth were responsible for some of the disorder in the church that we find in this letter. And uh, uh, it probably took the form of uh, an, a very forceful assertion of uh, rights because of their understanding of equality. By the way, we'll come to that later. Because of their understanding of equality, they, they decided that what the men did, they were to do exactly the same. When they saw the men unveil their heads, which was, by the way, in the, in the New Testament, women uh, having a veiled head, uh, that was no problem at all. But for a man to unveil his head in the presence of God was the most astounding and astonishing innovation. That was the thing that startled everybody. And uh, therefore, when the women saw the men take the veil off in testimony to something, they said, well, we're equal to them. We've been taught this. We understand this from the gospel and so on. Well, we'll take ours off too. It seems uh, probably uh, probable that the, there was a loud uh, asserting of their opinions in the form of antagonistic and forceful questions. Now, I can illustrate from my own experience in this matter. When I used to speak in many uh, companies in the East when I was living in Egypt, uh, the men and the women were always divided quite clearly into two. Uh, in no meeting in the East I, did I ever go into where men and women sat together. And in most places, there was a large curtain down the center, and a very heavy one, like the veil of the temple, which divided the two. Now, the speaker could see the women and the men, but no one else could. And in some places, especially in the more countrified towns and villages, um, the women's quarter was a completely walled-off section with a great black hole. They didn't even put electric light in there for them. There they were all packed into the dark, they couldn't read or write. They had all the children in there with them. And what happened was that one child started crying and then some old granny would give advice and then another mother would give advice and then someone else. And often my interpreter got so angry, he would thump the thing, 
stopping me altogether. We can't hear him again. If you women don't shut up, we'll turn you out. I've had that more than once and thought very ashamed of preaching the word of God with an interpreter who nearly lost his um, temper more than once. Uh, I always felt extremely sorry for the ladies uh, uh, in the dark, especially in the country areas, packed in uh, there, and men mentioned it many times uh, uh, to the responsible uh, brethren. I have been in another occasion, uh, Coptic Church, where there was a place as large as this with a gallery all round, latticed, just as the old synagogues used to be. And there was a wedding in progress. We'd been asked to the wedding. And I remember um, in the midst of it, uh, a the, the big lattice work had small little windows which could be opened. And suddenly you would see a window open and a head come out and someone would yell down. And then uh, one of the men would turn up and in one case, the man in front of me, she obviously asked him, do you want an orange? And <laughs> down came an orange from the gallery. Now, don't think for a single woman. Women uh, have absolutely, they're just chattels in here. There's quite a relationship between the men and the women. But you can understand that if this kind of thing happened with the Apostle Paul, this is one of the things he was talking about. He was preaching. The women didn't actually ask him because they were a little afraid of him. So what they did is they said, Abraham, Abraham, what does he mean? What does he mean? So he said, look here, if you've got questions, ask your husbands at home. Don't shout out in the church. Don't have all this hubbub of noise and so on coming from the gallery. Um, go home and ask your husbands. I'm sure that's really what the Apostle Paul meant. Didn't, he wasn't talking about praying or prophesying or taking part in an orderly manner. What he was talking about was the um, uh, general conversation and hubbub and the getting at the, uh, uh, those who were preaching or leading to very antagonistic and forceful questions. Well, now... Uh, this, I think, matter is also clear if you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9. 1 Timothy 2 verse 8 and 9. I desire, therefore, that the men pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without wrath and disputing, in like manner, uh, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefastness and sobriety, and so on. Now, will you please note here uh, that we have exactly the same thought here. It's perfectly clear that women are to pray, also to pray, as men. People often read this as in like women. Men should pray, lifting up their hands, but women should dress in a sort of very quiet manner. This is not the force of in like manner. What the Apostle was saying was this. I desire everyone, it's put in the New American Standard Bible rather well, it's put like this. Um, um, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray. Likewise, I want the women also. Now, it seems to me, you see, that you've got the, the force of in like manner is that the women are to pray in like manner. Only they're just to watch their uh, apparel and dress. That They're not exhibitionists. That's all. And they're not just seeking somehow or other to attract attention uh, and to sort of take the floor 
And you had quite a lot said there about behaviour uh, and deportment and so on uh, when praying. All those things are in connection with public prayer. In pu with public prayer. Um, so again, it is perfectly clear uh, that in this matter, uh, there is, as it says in the New American Standard Bible, they should be, uh, they should be discreetly and properly clothed, mod modestly and discreetly. With proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. See also Acts 21 and verse 9. Now this is another interesting uh, reference. Acts 21, verse 9, it says, Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Now, if you read the context, which we haven't got time this evening, this whole paragraph, you will see that it's all to do with another prophet called Agabus, who comes forward and um, prophesies to Paul. And then it goes on to say that because of this prophecy, the whole company of these people came forward and asked Paul, Don't go up to Jerusalem. Now, why does he mention these four women? What connection has this with the story? Unless it is that these four also, along with Agabus, had something to say and supported him in this matter. Uh, read it for yourself. What we find here, anyway, is that we have praying and prophesying. And it seems quite clear that this was uh, uh, accepted in uh, the early church, in the New Testament church. Now, going farther back, we have in Scripture some outstanding prophetesses. We have Miriam, who is called a prophetess in Exodus 15, verse 20. We have Deborah, uh, uh, who is called a prophetess in Judges uh, 4 and verse 4. We have Huldah, the wife of Shalom. 2 Chronicles 34 and verse 22. We have Anna, uh, the daughter of Phanuel, in Luke uh, 2, 36. And there we are told that she was not only a prophetess, but she spent her whole time serving the Lord in the temple. Obviously quite publicly, probably in the court of the women. Uh, quite, and by the way, the court of the women, the men got in there just as much as the women, only called the court of the women. Um, and then we have an even more interesting example which might serve as a warning also. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 20, we have Jezebel, a prophetess who seduceth and teacheth my servants. Who seduceth and teacheth my servants. So if there was even a prophetess in one of the churches, it seems quite clear um, that uh, there was a certain ministry exercised by women, perhaps not all the women, but by certain women, certainly. We must also uh, note 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, and verse 11. Verse 8. Deacons, in like manner, must be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, money. Uh, verse 11, women, in like manner, must be grave, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. Now, he's not referring to their wives, because he goes, let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. So now it is perfectly clear that there can be deaconesses. Now, this is a very... Now, what is a deacon? 
A deacon is someone who in the church is, has a responsibility for one of the aspects of church life, one of the material aspects. We have, for instance, Ralph is a deacon. He looks after the steward. He supervises the steward. David, Hilditch, Allen, they're deacons because they look after the treasury. Um, uh, who else can I think of? Uh, these are deacons. They are, we never call them deacons, but they are deacons. They are supervising aspects of the church's life in order to release other brethren for the ministry of the word. My word, if we had to look after all that as well as the minister of the word, we wouldn't do anything. So they do that so others can be free to minister uh, the word of God. They look after the running of everything in the church so that others can uh, give themselves to the oversight. Uh, the spiritual oversight of the house of God. Now, in the same way, there can be women who are deaconesses. That is, some aspect of the church can be given to them to supervise. And you have this quite definitely. It's not my idea. Uh, it's, um, uh, although I think it's a good idea, uh, Romans 16, Romans 16 and verse 1 and 2. I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church that is at Sencrii. Now, this lady um, is a servant. And if you look in your margin, if you have a revised version or a standard version, you will see a deaconess. The word is a deaconess. She's a lady deacon. And it doesn't mean that some of the deaconesses we know that just go around visiting the sick. It's not that just that. A deaconess is someone who has a responsibility in the church. Now, you go on, it says, verse 2, that she receive her in the Lord, worthily of the saints, that she assist her in whatsoever matter she may have need of you. For she herself also hath been a helper of many, and of mine own self. Now, doesn't this liberate a few? Well, I hope it does. Um, it, 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 uh, it destroys an idea that uh, uh, sisters just don't have any kind of responsibility at all. It doesn't mean that there are thousands of deaconesses, but it means that there's a possibility. Just as there are deacons, there can be deaconesses. Um, however, then we come to the other side. In teaching and exercising authority over men... Uh, there is no possibility. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. From verse 11 to 15. Now we won't read it all. But we'll read just verse 11 and 12. Let a woman learn in quietness with all subjection. But I permit not a woman to teach nor to have dominion over a man. But to be in quietness. Now, that rules out teaching as a definite teaching ministry and exercising authority over uh, uh, men. So now we have looked at the scriptures. Now, my second point I want to make this evening. Certain facts emerge from these scriptures, and I think we need to get them absolutely clear. I will seek, by the grace of God, to be as clear as I can. First, I want to say, the first fact which emerges from these scriptures is the absolute equality of brothers and sisters. The absolute equality of brothers and sisters. There is no such thing 
as inequality between men and women in Christ. No such thing. It is a devilish conception. A devilish conception. In other words, it has its origin in hell and has brought along with it bondage, bitterness, inhibition, frustration, paralysis on the work of God. There is no such thing as inequality in worth, in value, in status, or even in influence. I do hope we can get that quite clear. In worth, a man's soul is no more valuable than a woman's soul. If God has done a deeper work in a woman's soul, it is in one sense more valuable than a man's soul. There's no difference in soul. There's no inequality in value. There's no inequality in status. In the sight of God, men and women have the same status. They are redeemed saints of the Most High. They are children of God, born of the Spirit of God, saved by the blood of the Lamb. They are members of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. They have absolute equality in status. But even in influence, there's no inequality. Now here we must come to a point which I would like just to emphasize and underline. The, women, the influence of women is bound. And all this business about trying to get a push women, push women, is so much nonsense. Of course in this wicked world, this unjust world, there are all kinds of things that are wrong. Why should a woman be paid a third less, for instance, in this world, for doing just the same job as a man? And he gets a third more. It does seem quite unjust. Especially when many men will also admit that women work far more hard than the men. Of course it's unjust. We understand that. But let's get this clear. Women have a tremendous influence. And not just in the 20th century. Women have always had a tremendous influence. Look how Sarah influenced her husband. Look what Re how Rebecca influenced her family. My word, she caused a lot of trouble. But the, but the influence of a woman is much greater than a man. The idea that a man has tremendous influence because he's born a man is rubbish. A real woman knows it. <laughs> My goodness me, most women, if they're women at all, have got any femininity at all, they know they can get round any man using the right methods and <laughs> guile. But it's a fact. It's an absolute fact. I mean, the whole of, of history is influenced by women. If we were to know the real story of human history we would find again and again it's been the women in the background that have, have in some way influenced major decisions that have, uh, have, have, uh, uh, that have uh, turned history into another course. Now this isn't just nonsense. You just read the biographies of great men and you will find that when there's been a good relationship between husband and wife, my word, uh, the influence that the wives have had on their husbands. Sometimes not in, in word, and not in theory, not in an understanding, but just in love. Have helped 
such a man to take a decision just by caring for him and loving him and being really holy with him. The influence of a woman is tremendous. And then again, I would say this, that in a home, and most of us must bear witness to this, it is the mother's influence that is the longer lasting. There's nothing like a bad mother. It's a terribly bad mother. But again and again you find it's, it's, it's women who, mothers who have influenced uh, uh, sons. For instance, you think of Augustine, you think of Watchman Nee, you think of all kinds of people in church history again. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. All you who are mothers, you have a tremendous responsibility. It's not the husband in the end who has the great influence in the home, it's the woman. She has a tremendous influence upon her children and their character and their personality and their, de their development. And this is true in the church. Women have a tremendous influence in the church. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Well, I don't know if I've labored that point too much. But let me say this, that if there is any inequality, it's the other way round. The women are the ones who've got the influence when it really comes to it. Because without saying a word, they can influence. And do again and again and again. And that's probably why there has to be so much in the Word of God of restraint, restraint, restraint. Just because of the powerful influence of uh, the woman. Um, now, there are a number of scriptures in this matter. Galatians 3, verse 28. There can be neither Jew nor Greek. There can be neither bond nor free. There can be no male or female. For ye are all one man in Christ Jesus. No male or female. You're all one man in Christ Jesus. And then again, I think of Genesis 1, 26 and 27, going right back to the very first statement of the difference of, uh, se of the sexes. And what does it say? In verse 26... God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And God created, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Absolute equality. Male and female created he them. No question of what we get in the second chapter, of the man first and the woman afterwards. Here we just have a statement of equality. Let us make man in our image. Male and female. Absolute equality. Uh, then again, um, uh, I think of uh, Mark 12, 25. You remember the story when the Sadducees came and told uh, a rather stupid story uh, to the Lord to try and catch him out about uh, uh, a wife who had seven husbands, what would happen to her in heaven. And the Lord said in Mark 12 and verse 25, for when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are angels in heaven. Now Luke has a very interesting variation of this. Luke 20 and uh, verse um, uh, 35 and 36, he puts it like this. Um, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, last part of verse 35, for neither can they die anymore. They're equal unto the angel and are sons of God and sons of the resurrection. So the woman becomes a son. <laughs> uh, there's, no, there's no male and female in heaven. You do realize that, don't you all? 
When, the, when we men die, we are no longer males. And when uh, the women die, they're no longer uh, female. We are one in the Lord. We neither give nor are given in marriage. We neither marry nor are given in marriage. So, you see, uh, this is rather wonderful. Now, here, there's another little point here. All the sisters are referred to as sons of God. When you get that term, sons of God, as opposed to children of God, it refers to all the brothers and the sisters. And then again, some sisters have got a terrible feeling. They say, you know, this, or every time they struck, they said, brethren. But you see, in English, we can't say what you can, for instance, in um, German, Geschwister, or in um, uh, the Scandinavian language, Soskine, which just means brothers and sisters together. We can't say it in English. But brethren includes the sisters. Not as one man prayed in the church, I used to be the system. Um, <laughs> brethren and the system. Um, the brother, the sisters are included with the brothers. So when you read that word brethren, you know what it means. And that's why now and again, when Paul was speaking to men only, he said men and brethren. To make it quite clear. Now, so just get that quite clear again. <laughs> then again, what about the bride of Christ that we read of in Revelation uh, 19 and verse 7, and also in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27? There, all the brothers are called a woman. So much for these differences. There seems to be quite an equality here. The equality of brothers and sisters in Christ. There have been many terrible misunderstandings and misconceptions over this matter. For example, women are inferior. Uh, they are to be servile. They are to be subject. And that means just servile. Shut up and do what they're told. To be seen and not heard. They are to be skivvies, doing all the menial jobs in the background. There's all these false constructions that have been placed upon this matter. Many others too. I remember once when I was a boy of 15 going to a Christian guest house in the south of England and to my horror, I should not, not have been there, they should have got me out, listening to a discussion between a man and a wife who were staying there with the owner of the guest house. I happen to know very well that's why I was staying there. And it was on this question of women praying. And he said, I am proud to say I have never heard my wife pray since we were married. Uh, his view of scripture was that she wasn't permitted to pray, she must do everything to the man. Well, of course, such, such bondage, such misconceptions are bound to bring in their weight death and disorder and spiritual barrenness. And you've never seen that poor woman. She, I've never ever forgotten that little brow-beaten uh, creature. Inhibited. Um, so, of course, this, is, this kind of misconception has resulted in much misbehavior on the part of men towards women. And often you will find that in big discussions, especially in circles that believe this kind of thing, then the final thing is for some brother to stand on it, you are a woman, you should be subject. And this, of course, is the thing again and again which causes a lot of upset and unhappiness. 
On the other hand, the recognition of this equality has led to quite wrong consequences, uh, not taking into consideration other scriptures. We have all kinds of remarkable things happening. And in some circles, it is quite extraordinary. And this is probably what happened at Corinth. They're unveiling, for instance, of their heads, you see, and so on. And why the Apostle Paul felt it so, uh, uh, so strongly that he said, now you must be very, very careful about this matter, because this veiling of the head, this having your head covered or your head uncovered, goes to the root of something. It's not just what you do. It's what lies behind it. And we must preserve, on the one hand, the absolute equality of brothers and sisters in Christ, and on the other hand, a difference. And that leads me to uh, another point. Uh, the difference between brothers and sisters. There is a very real difference, not in the matter of equality and so on, but in the matter of function. Uh, this is obvious in nature. I hope I don't have to go into it uh, too thoroughly. Uh, the man and the woman are not only different physically, but they are different psychologically, and women's lib can say what they like. The fact of the matter is that men and women are different. And anyone who's got their eyes wide open, hasn't got some kind of complex, can see it. And anyway, who wants to marry a woman <laughs> who's a man psychologically? I mean, honestly, who wants to? Rather run a thousand miles. <laughs> it's like marrying a man. It, the whole thing's ridiculous. Can't understand women getting involved in such a thing. Are they women, or is there something wrong with them? There's a difference between men and women physically. We don't have to talk about it. It's perfectly clear, and therefore there is one psychologically. I listened a while ago to one of the leading uh, child psychologists discussing this very matter. After ten years of investigations on the states into children below, uh, from one to five, and uh, the differences between the two, whether in fact they were environmental or whether they were inward. And they found that over ten years, the male was without any shadow of a, a doubt the aggressive creature, from the moment he was born. And whilst there were exceptions, as always, on the whole, a woman was not the aggressive one. In other words, she didn't get into scraps all the time. You know there were girls who are always getting into scraps. There are always exceptions to every rule. But the fact of the matter is that men and women are not only physically different, but they are psychologically different. Now, um, they are meant to complement each other. And this is the tragedy of the modern movement. Men and women are meant to complement each other. Let us create man in our image after our likeness. He created them male and female. Man is made up of two complementary parts, male and female. And you only have completeness when you have men and women together. Now, we know that the last phase of world history is going to be disorder. 
And one of the lines of this disorder is just along this line. There are grounds, of course, for the whole movement uh, on the matter of equality. But you can see the way things uh, are going. Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here we've got dear old Paul again uh, with his bluntness. Um, this is how he puts it. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8 and 9. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Oh, that sounds terrible. For neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Oh, dear. Then he goes on, verse 11. Nevertheless, neither is the woman without the man, nor the man without the woman in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, so is the man also by the woman, that all things may be of God. Now there you have absolute equality and complete difference in function. If we were all women, what would happen? God preserve us. <laughs> and I know many women would feel that too. <laughs> there would be no more. There would be no more human race. The whole thing would finish. If we were all men, God preserve us. Now, isn't it interesting that when you go into those meetings where women are not allowed to, to take part at all, except, as I say, to sing, there is a definite lack. Well, I've been in many, many places. I could have wept. What is the lack? There's a lack of warmth. A lack of warmth and a lack of spontaneity. People can stand up as they feel led of the Spirit, but there's, there's something terribly still. There's that lack of warmth and spontaneity and love. Go into a, a something which is all women, as I mentioned, a certain place, and my word, it gives you the willies. I mean, I, I, I tried to be as objective as I possibly could in that particular uh, uh, meeting, but it was impossible. It was impossible. The whole... It was a matriarchy. It was, it, was, it was something unhealthy about the whole thing. And the interesting thing is that most women feel that. Good. <laughs> now, what the point is not to have men on their own, nor women on their own, but men and women in the law. There's a difference in function uh, in this matter. So I think um, uh, we need, I think, to underline this matter. Also, will you turn to Genesis 2, 18 to 25? And there, now, you have the difference of function. Now, in Genesis, 18, uh, uh, Genesis 2, 18 to 25, you've not just got the statement of equality, male and female. Here, you have the fact that woman is taken out of man. There's a difference in function. That's what's being accentuated and emphasized there. Now, if you turn from there, sorry to give you all these scriptures, but we'll never get to the questions which I want to. Uh, 1 Peter 3 and verse 7. Ye husbands, in like manner, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, giving honor unto the woman as unto the weaker vessel. Now, some ladies don't like this, this weaker vessel. But it's actually very, very wonderful. He didn't mean they were inferior. What he meant was this, that the male is the aggressive and the woman is the receptive. She is the weaker in that sense. She is not in the... She has, her function is different. Now the man is to honour the woman as the weaker vessel. And here is the wonderful thing, as being joint heirs. 
That's the point that everyone overlooks. Isn't it strange? They get the weaker vessels and get all upset about that. They never look at joint heirs. Joint heirs of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Whose prayers? The man's prayers as well as the woman's. So there's an absolute equality, but difference of function. There's a hymn we often sing, Let my ordered life confess the beauty of, your, of thy peace. Order is always peace. Joy, peace, comes with order. Disease is disorder. When things that ought to be in your body get out of their right place into another. Disorder. And this is what's happening when men and women try to be the same. We have different functions. And we have a different approach. We need to be together because we're together. We, we, are, we are the man. We're complementing each other. Now, I think it's therefore of paramount importance that we should all see this. The brothers and the sisters, uh, uh, the brothers need the sisters, and the sisters need the brothers because all are in Christ, and they complement each other. And this explains the words of Scripture which appear to be quite severe and uh, hard on the sisters. Uh, because of this awful possibility of disorder. Now, the last thing I want to say before we move on thing is the place of sisters uh, in the life and gatherings of the church. How can we summarize these things? First of all, sisters can contribute in every way but teaching and exercising authority. They can contribute in praise, prayer, testimony, hymns, prophecy, spiritual gifts, etc., 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 etc. There is no part of the church's life in which they cannot contribute except in the matter of teaching or authority. Uh, they can have a responsibility even for aspects of the work. There is no difference except in this one matter. And in this one matter... This great difference in function is preserved. Leadership on this one hand, the exercising of authority or authoritative teaching. Um, again, we can summarize by saying they should have their heads covered in testimony when so contributing. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5 and verse 10. You should be careful about dress and behavior. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. But this, of course, uh, uh, is also for the brothers. The brothers should have their heads uncovered. And uh, uh, the brothers should also be careful in the way uh, that they contribute, the manner in which they do so. The married sister's supreme ministry, let me just say this, the married sister's supreme ministry is in her home and family. Um, there are a whole number of scriptures we can give for that. But, you see, many people feel that when you're a married sister, uh, you have no ministry. Your family is your ministry. And that is actually the ministry God has given you in the church. And the bringing up of a home in the fear and admonition of the Lord is a tremendous vocation. Um, there's such a lot in the scripture about this matter. It says she shall be saved in childbearing. It hasn't got dark connotations. It just means the woman will find her fulfillment, 
her complete and absolute fulfillment in her home. And that is her sphere. Not to try and be something else. So, married sisters, remember that. And then there is another point here uh, where in 1 Timothy 5 verse 14 uh, there's just a little phrase which I want to just touch on in this matter. 1 Timothy 5 verse 14 I desire therefore that the younger widows marry, bear children, rule the household. Now don't... There is a little key, uh, sisters, uh, married sisters. Rule the household. Don't let your husbands rule it. Rule it. All this nonsense about... Uh, husbands are to, are to lay down the law in the home all the time. You're to rule your household. An old Swedish, Swedish brother once said, a wise old Swedish brother once said at a wedding, if you, he said to them both as they were getting married, he said to the husband, if you're a wise man, you will allow your wife to rule your household. The husband is to take the decision the woman is to rule her household. And that the happiest homes are all the homes in which the husband gives complete responsibility to the wife in the management of the home. Husbands shouldn't have to continually worry about this and that and the other. Now, a good, a good wife ought to be able to take everything on her shoulders and do it well. Now, some of you say, oh, I don't think this is right. Um, going too far in the other direction he is. Um, I refer you to Proverbs 31 and verse 10 to 31 about the wife who is more precious than rubies. And if you will only notice what this extraordinary woman does, this knocks forever on the head the idea that a woman can't rule her own household. She even goes and buys a field. Yes, she grows vegetables, she clothes the whole household in scarlet, she does everything. Her husband gives her the money, but she does the rest. A most extraordinary woman. She spins, she weaves, she sews, she, she's not a skivvy. Well, honestly, you look, honestly, you look at that thing and see she's no skivvy, that woman. That woman there is in her own right. She's a real human being in her own right. And she could probably teach her husband a few lessons too in business acumen and shrewdness and much else. So you see, don't you see, the biblical idea of man and woman isn't that the man has got all personality and the woman is a shadow. The biblical idea is that the man not only has a personality but the woman has her own original personality which complements the man completely. I do hope uh, that this is understood. Now, I'm not saying that husbands shouldn't take decisions and be the head of the home. What I'm saying is that the wife... This message given by Lance is continued in the next tape in this series of Life in the Local Church, entitled The Ministry of Sisters in the Church.